0: I'm Frank Morris and you're listening to The Optical.
1: Welcome to episode six of the podcast. As ever, we're going back through the very earliest issues of Cinefix magazine, the journal of cinematic illusion, uh, talking about visual effects and the films and techniques and people that they covered in the pages of Cinefix. And we thank Cinefix for access to these early out of print issues. This episode is going to be covering issue six, which covered Dragon Slayer and. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It also covered some really early CGI stuff. We're going to talk about that in episode seven of the podcast, along with Willis O'Brien, the animator for King Kong. But right now for episode six, even with just Raiders and Dragon Slayer, we've got so much great stuff that we're going to split the podcast in half. This is the first half this week. And in two weeks, I'm going to get you episode 6B, which will have an interview with sound designer Mark Mancini, who worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and was sound designer on The Fifth Element and a number of other great films, and more talk about the effects of Dragon Slayer. But for episode 6, splitting it up is something that we're trying as we reach the end of what we originally envisioned as the first season of The Optical Podcast, uh, episodes 1 through 6. And, you know, we said, you know, at the end of that, let's see how it's going. Do we need to tweak anything, change anything up? Uh, Maybe tiny minor tweaks, um, but we're trying to really improve our quality and uh, get you some more information about some of the people and techniques and companies that were mentioned in the pages of Cinefix. And we're working on building a website whose goal is to index the print edition of Cinefix and have cross-linked references for all the people and companies and techniques and the movies that were covered in the pages of Cinefix. And where we can provide more information, almost an encyclopedia of visual effects is the end goal for this. Um, It's probably going to be a multi-year project, but we could use your help to get started. The coding and design of the website is well underway, um, but we need a lot of help to get that data in there and get it organized in a way that will make it a useful resource for the VFX community. So to help fund the second season of the obstacle and building of the website, we're running a fundraiser right now. You can buy a t-shirt, you get a t-shirt, and part of the money goes direct to us to help fund this new development. So if you go to booster.com slash optical podcast, and there'll be a link on the website, you can buy a t-shirt or two or 10 and help us out and uh, share that with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. Maybe they don't even know about the podcast and they should, because, you know, I think we're having a lot of fun here and hopefully you guys are listening. So I hope you're having fun too. Got a lot of stuff going on and we could really use your help. So again, go to booster.com slash optical podcast. But for this episode, we've got an interview with Thane Morris, who's a special effects legend that's physical, mechanical effects and pyrotechnician uh, who worked on both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dragon Slayer. And we talk with Jamie Bedding, who is the inventor of the Filmumentaries documentary format that weaves behind the scenes footage into the film itself. But first, let's talk about Raiders. So here with me to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark is editor Brian Newell, and writer for Cinefix, Joe Fordham. How are you guys doing?
2: Great, thanks. Great, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Good to be here.
1: I've known Brian for a number of years when I was doing uh, TV editing for uh, Discovery and National Geographic and that kind of stuff. And Joe, I just met recently at the Celebrating Cinefix event that they had in LA, which that was pretty cool, I think.
2: Yeah, pretty entertaining.
1: So, Raiders of the Lost Ark...
2: It's an amazing, amazing film that kicked off a really fun series, but man, no matter when you saw it, it sort of takes you back to a sort of childhood feel of watching movies. I
1: had been for a number of years kind of waffling back and forth between Raiders and Back to the Future and maybe Ghostbusters <laughs> as my top three movies, mm-hmm. and I think I've decided recently, no, that Raiders really is my favorite movie. I guess it hit me at exactly the right age, and it was just, it just wrote itself on my brain, and th- this is what a movie should be, kind of a,
3: <laughs> for the rest of my life, it's it's stuck in my brain. Yeah, my relationship with Raiders goes back a long way. <laughs> I saw it the year that it came out, but I have to confess, the first time I saw it, I didn't get it. I didn't really understand what they were going for. And really? Uh, yeah, I thought it was going to be something sci-fi, actually. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> and I went to see it with a couple of friends, and they didn't like it. And I was kind of like, oh, that's uh, that's a shame. But then, very strangely, and I can't explain this, my local uh, cinema in Essex in England, they did a 70 millimeter screening. Mm. And I went to see it on my own. And uh, this time, it just knocked my eyeballs out of my head and i and i was like electrified plugged into the movie Mm. this was in july of 1982 i still to this day can't explain how a a little provincial theater in in romford where where i was from Mm. got hold of a 70 millimeter print let alone a 70 millimeter projector where how on earth did they install that but (laughs) i i had the full you know, 70 mil Dolby experience. And it just kind of came alive for me. And I saw it five more times that year. Wow. (laughs) Just that year. And I've counted now I've, it's probably, I've seen it 12 times in the theater Mm. when I was living in the UK. The most recent time I saw it was just last year in October. It was at the Cinerama Dome and Steven Spielberg was there. Oh wow. q a to the audience and i sat there with a fedora on my head and a beaten up old leather jacket <laughs> i was like second row back from the front in the center and it was um uh, a real special moment for me it's a great movie I'm, I'm a really annoying person to watch the movie with because i mumble all the dialogue and i sing all the music that's <laughs> so kind of in my blood <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, I was I was just watching it again this afternoon. I was kind of you know making a few little last minute notes, and I was like, I kept writing down you know all the little lines that come up. You know they're digging in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Saw the singing yep. and uh, and <laughs> I don't get me started yeah don't yeah <laughs> especially with that accent yeah <laughs> i think my uh, still my favorite line in there which is like totally almost a non sequitur you know you can't even tell what it is out of context but it's just the
2: <laughs> son of a bitch
4: yes <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah that, i mean it's a great little uh you know, moment for his character too. You sort of, you just, you, you get his humor and, and sarcasm, and mm-hmm. and he he really pops as a character in that way. I'm sort of jealous thinking about you know, have you guys have or the first time seeing it in a seventy, you know, seventy millimeter print in a theater because I can't remember the first time that I saw it, but I can guarantee you that it was on VHS mm-hmm. on a small television. That was probably the first dozen or so times that I saw it was probably in that format, plus Hmm. uh, the other three. So yeah, I can't recall if I don't think I have actually seen it in a theater setting. I think the only one that I've actually seen in a theater setting is somewhat regrettably Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.
1: I'm I'm sure the first time I saw it was or the first several times I saw it was on TV. I'm sure it was like, you know, the ABC Sunday night movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I didn't get to see it in the theater until... I think when I was in college, the AFI, they have a theater in in DC, and it used to be in the Kennedy Center. Hmm. And that's
3: where I saw it on the big screen for the first time. I have a question for you, Mark. Sure. And Brian, I don't know if you know, back in the day that the first making of book about Raiders of the Lost Ark was written by Derek Taylor Mm. and I don't have that with me right now but I swear I read something in there that the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark was chronicled by a pair of French documentary filmmakers that George Lucas took under his wing mm. and he commissioned them to cover the whole process from the beginning of development, that famous meeting where Spielberg and Lucas and Larry Castan sat down right. and, and brainstormed in January 1978, all the way through filming, all the way through post-production so that he would have documentary footage that he could donate to USC as like a textbook example of how a Hollywood studio movie is made (laughs) and when I heard that I thought oh my God, I've got to go to USC. I've got to see that footage. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's true or if perhaps I misconstrued something that I read, but you know the wonderful uh, making of documentary that was aired on PBS in uh, Mm. 81? That was by Philip Schumann. But I don't know if that is a result of like a cut down version of it or if it ever went full whack and did the documentary series for hmm. the students at USC. I'd love to know if that's true or if it's just something I dreamed, but uh, <laughs> I thought it was very prescient of George Lucas and it was very telling about the movie because the, in a way it's a movie about movies, you know, the, the way it throws back to the old serials and everything. Right. And, and, and I think that's what, when I finally got the movie when it clicked for me. That's what thrilled me because it, it made me realize how much I love movies and and how much I could learn from them. And it was a real sort of life transforming experience being able to analyze how that whole thing was put together and and realize what they could do to create a movie on that scale. Mm-hmm. I'd just love to know if that if that documentary series really came to pass.
1: Yeah I didn't know about that. I'd be very curious here because i believe on the blu-rays is the pbs one yes yeah which is still great but yeah yeah
3: that's, that- That's only sixty minutes, though. So, uh, and it's great. I mean, amazing footage. I think it's some of the best documentary behind-the-scenes footage because it's so candid. Mm -hmm. That leads me to believe that you know these were indentured filmmakers who weren't just like some. (laughs) You know, nowadays when you people cover a movie, they tend to be sort of a a team of marketing guys who they're they're wheeled in and they do a bunch of headshots with people sitting you know in their chairs. It's sound bites. It's clips. But this was like a real fly-on-the-wall documentary. And uh, yeah. I thought found that really fascinating.
2: Yeah. Is that the same one that's in the uh, the filmumentary that the PBS one that he's that he's intercutting with? Um, the, there's
1: definitely a bunch of that footage that's yeah. in the filmumentary we're, we're talking in this episode also with uh, Jamie Benning who's made these right. filmumentary documentaries where he's kind of edited in documentary footage and director's commentary sort of stuff and editing it actually into the movie itself so you kind of get to see it you know bits and pieces of the movie intercut with how they made that part of the movie and he's done that for all of the Star Wars
2: movies all three of them mm-hmm. and <laughs> for yeah. uh, Raiders and Jaws What's so cool about some of that footage is just it demystifies it uh, to a certain degree. And you get to see, you know, this sort of scrawny Spielberg sometimes with his shirt off. And you just to see him actually working in a very practical, pragmatic way, you know, just sort of talking to actors. Why don't you just try this? Put, you know, say this, do it like this, put your head like this. It just sort of takes him down from this great cinematic genius and just and you sort of can see him just working right uh, and that's such an awesome thing to see i was pretty surprised
1: too to find that they uh, i think it was the cinefx article that said that they had planned it for 85 days and they actually finished 20 days early <laughs>
3: right. yeah which is crazy nobody finishes 20 days early There's a lot of anecdotes about the film that you can find in different forms, and it's probably one of the most written-about films. But if you go back to the old American cinematographer, they've got articles written by Dougie Slocum, the cinematographer, and by Spielberg, talking about their own experiences firsthand. Now, whether they were actually penned by those gentlemen or result of an interview that was then written in the first person, I, I don't know. Uh, mm. But uh, I'd like to believe they were written by the the actual <laughs> bylined uh, authors. But you can get Spielberg's own interpretation of that back then. He said that he actually had two shooting schedules. One was for the, what was it, 85 days? Right. That was the one that they gave to uh, Paramount. Uh-huh. But he made a personal commitment to do it shorter than that mm. for himself and for George Lucas, and he didn 't let anyone else know huh. I mean that is an amazing feat to be able to pull off a film of that complexity in that in that shorter time uh, and also mm-hmm. I know it's been quoted elsewhere that before they landed their amazing deal at Paramount, Spielberg and Lucas didn't get the okay to do it because other studios didn't think it was possible to make a movie of that scope on that scale you know huh. f- for twenty million dollars right. Well, we live in a different world now, but um, they set themselves up with those goals. I think both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for similar reasons, but for Spielberg, I know he was coming off of a really tough time on 1941 where he'd famously been shooting up teen takes and going over schedule and over budget on a a very complicated film. But, um, and he wanted to prove to his friend, George Lucas, that he could tighten his belt just get on with it and not mess around and not allow himself to be pretentious and go back to the old sort of heyday of, of Hollywood where they would turn around so many quota quickies and make some pretty amazing films um, on very tight schedules with very limited resources. Hmm. And um, it worked. <laughs> yeah, it totally did. Uh,
1: as far as visual effects goes, it seems like surprisingly few. Mm. So much of it was actually done on set, real stunts, not hanging people on wires uh, so much. <laughs> one or mm-hmm. one or two of those in here, but it's just a lot of, a lot of hard work that's seen on the screen but there's definitely a few matte paintings that are very impressive there's there's one especially that's impressive the the jeep being driven off the side of the cliff yep Mm -hmm. and the matte painting was so long they had to put it sideways to you know actually shoot it with the camera on its side so they could pan down it as the jeep falls and they kind of have this perspective shift inside the painting itself so as you pan along it it looks like you're tilting down the cliff's face.
3: Yeah, that's an old animation technique. That's a, a, a layout thing. If you see like backgrounds in Disney paintings where they would pan across the city, it would be painted in a wide angle perspective to give you that illusion of depth. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: And that one, it was just, it was used, uh, I think it was used very effectively because, you know, again, that's something else that they could, you could go overboard with. I mean, it does not jump out at you compared to like uh, Last Crusade, sort of when the tank's going over it's that's that one's a little more cartoony um (laughs) you know but this does not stand out it doesn't jump out of the uh doesn't jump you out of the movie
1: well it's because you're you're right on to the rest of the chase at that point you're you don't even have time to think about it
2: and it looks good i mean yeah especially for 1981
3: alan Maley was the head of the matte paintings on uh, raiders who's a, a british gentleman i might add who came up with uh uh, but he did a lot of work for the bond films and disney yeah. movies made in england and he had michael pangrazio and chris evans as yeah. junior map painters i think all they were at least doing the work with him on that yeah. and i'm not sure which one of those three gentlemen did that particular painting it escapes my mind but obviously yeah. the uh, the one that kind of has gone down in history is the the end shot of the movie which was done by Mike Pangrazio and uh, when I was um, covering King Kong for Cinefax magazine Mm. I uh, went out to New Zealand to chat with Peter Jackson and all of his guys they mentioned who the the head of their um, art department was in putting the environments together and it was Mm. Mike Pangrazio and it's like (laughs) Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) So I had a uh, complete geek moment where I got to meet Mike, and he was very unassuming, and uh, probably everyone that meets him probably reminds me of that shot. But uh, (laughs) he's still very much involved in uh, creating amazing environments, um, working for Weta Digital out there in New Zealand. Um, But that was definitely one of the big thrills. I have managed to encounter a number of the stars of the visual effects of Raiders of the Lost Art working for uh, Don Shea and CineFX mm-hmm. I interviewed Kit West once for City of Ember. Uh, I think he was amazed that I connected him with uh, you know raiders of the lost ark but mm. uh, he's the guy that blew everything up <laughs> <laughs> you know there's a, there's a moment after they've just got done with stealing the ark from the uh, flying wing and Great. there's a, a foreground shot of paul freeman as belloc standing there in the desert and uh, he's just made some sort of very villainous pronouncement and it, uh, uh, and <laughs> Behind him, boom! There's this big column of fire, and he just goes Jones. Whenever I see that, I always think Kit West. Yeah, yeah here's a he's a great fun interview, and as many of the uh, practical special effects supervisors are, it's, it was a real thrill to speak with him. And he also did a lot of great work on uh, uh, David Lynch's Dune from Memory, I believe. And um, and uh, and I have on a number of occasions, had the very great pleasure of interviewing uh, Dennis Murin and uh, Richard Edlund I've also encountered in in my travels. But um, it's probably, for all these guys, it was just one of those movies back then, Mm -hmm. and they all did a good job. And I was rereading The American Cinematographer and Spielberg mentions a lot of the crew were very used to each other because they'd all worked on Star Wars, or as we Mm -hmm. have to now call it, A New Hope. Uh, Mm -hmm. They'd all worked on Empire (laughs) Strikes Back. Many of them have worked on Superman. so. There was Stephen stepping in for his friend, George Lucas. George basically pulled all this crew together with the producer, Robert Watts, who's another fantastic, brilliant, underrated hero in, in the Indiana Jones story, mm. and, and art director, Norman Reynolds, um, art director, Les Dilley, the costume designer, Deborah Nadulman, who's uh, the wife of John Landis. Uh, and she mm. put to, She put together, you know, the fedora and that leather jacket. It was a team that were very... They could answer each other's questions and they, they moved really well together and um, they enabled Spielberg to be able to pull off that incredible feat of shooting it for 70-odd uh, you know, days. And
4: hmm.
1: It's funny you mentioned them working together on Superman as well. That was one of the things that um, at the Celebrating Cinefix event that I believe Craig Barron asked Don Shea about what's a movie that you would like to have covered that you couldn't, and that was Superman. Uh, he said that because the studios wouldn't let them talk to anyone about it. <laughs> they really wanted to keep it, you know, kind of, you know, you'll believe a man can fly and we're going to leave it at that. <laughs> yep. Oh, about Alan May. Um. Oh, he also did the matte paintings for Dragon Slayer. Which we're Alan gonna, Miley yes. Yeah, Alan <laughs> Mayley. Sorry. He was apparently the person who pioneered the technique of putting a front projection screen behind like a little scraped out bit in his matte painting so you could insert live action into it. Um, he had been doing that on The Spy Who Loved Me before he brought that
3: technique to ILM. Isn't that uh, like an adaptation of the Schuftan process? What is uh, what is the Schuftan process? <laughs> it's like Emil or Eugene Schuftan. It's a technique of uh, shooting through a half-silvered mirror and you scrape away part of the mirror. So you effectively do an in-camera composite.
1: Uh, Eugene
3: Schuftan, the German
1: cinematographer, when he was working on Metropolis... In 1927.
3: Yeah, it goes back way, way, way back. And that's why I can't remember very much about wow. it. But it's, okay. an old, it's an old technique that um, maybe he got his idea about what he did from, sorry, Eugene Shifton? Yes. It? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I don't know. You know. I'm like,
1: I'm constantly realizing how much I don't know <laughs> about the history of special There's There's a lot
3: of clever guys, Um, some of them very obscure, you know, from like Eastern Europe and did you see um, Hugo, Scorsese's movie about... I haven't, no. I covered that one for Don, and, and it gives a perspective on this guy who was a toy maker mm. in France and, and how he was enchanted by the idea of moving pictures. And he basically built his own cameras and just started messing around and trying things out. Mm. And uh, it's really inspiring, actually. It's all tied up as an adaptation of a children's story told in a kind of fairy tale way, but it's beautifully done. And I couldn't work out what Scorsese's in was on the show until i started to realize talking to uh, rob legato the visual effects supervisor Mm -hmm. that it was the magic of Georges melier in that case Mm -hmm. and that inventiveness that gave birth to the beginning of trick photography as we all know scorsese is a huge historian when it comes to film and he's probably one of the most knowledgeable filmmakers out there about film history so he wanted to honor that and plant the seed of that Imagination in young people's brains Hmm. by using that book, where uh, Georges Méliès is a fictionalized character, but nevertheless, it's based on real life. And I find it really inspiring to find out how you know when people are just learning how to put film together. That Georges Méliès would actually have to punch his own sprockets in the film. (laughs) You know, so there's a lot we take for granted today. I mean, I can uh, shoot something on my camera, edit it on my on my laptop, and uh, put it on the internet, and a million people can see it. Mm. So we've come a long way, but it still comes down to the basic nuts and bolts of ingenuity and imagination and just you know wanted to have fun and sort of try things out. And to bring that back to, to Spielberg and Raiders of the Lost Ark, there mm. was a lot of that spirit of invention and just having fun with it and getting on and not being too bogged down in sort of style and and uh, pretension and uh, i think that's what really gives the film its charm mm. and a real sort of earthy kind of vibrancy it's uh, still very effective and very in- infectious it's easy to i certainly mm. caught caught the bug you know watching that movie i just wanted to go out and grab a 16 millimeter camera and just start making <laughs> my own Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. You know, what's sort of when you're talking about the matte painting mm. uh, technique from Melee, I mean, it, that's sort of what's so cool about reading these articles is that extreme inventiveness and engineering that was done. You know, it's just, it's so wildly different. ILM thinking about the fact that they were making Dragon Slayer and Raiders um, mm. simultaneously and reading in depth on some of these techniques. You know, that are so intense with and complicated using water tanks and all these different ways of projecting and blue screen and the way they're matting things out. And it's, I guess the sort of the, the imagination, it's, it's still there in, in cinema today, but it's sort of been transferred, I think, from sort of, you know, hands on, you know, imagination to now it's all in your own brain. But, um, mm. it's just so fun to read just these guys in a shop just figuring things out.
3: There's a very interesting passage in Don Shea's story. Actually, I probably should mention that Don Shea, the you know, the publisher of Cinefix, actually wrote the Raiders of the Lost Ark story in, in that mm-hmm. Cinefix number six. When they talk about how they were trying to come up with ideas to, to do the ghosts for mm-hmm. the, when they opened the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. they all started thinking, well, you know, how have ghosts been done before? And they were talking to, I think it was Sam Comstock who was Mm -hmm. the the head of their animation department back then, 2D. Sam actually did designs and uh, some tests, which I've don't believe I've ever seen, Hmm. but the person that came up with the idea that mostly ended up in the movie, it's a bunch of different ideas that they kind of melded together, but it was Steve Gawley, Hmm. the great Steve Gawley, who's uh, one of the main model makers uh, at ILM. He proposed putting little puppets of silk and organza in a water tank and basically wafting them around to make dimensional physical objects. Hmm. They were able to put that together with some animation when they wanted the ghosts to wrap around physical objects in a bit more of a detailed way. Like when that guy's like beating them off, the, the, yep. let, me re- <laughs> let, me, let me
4: rephrase that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when that Nazi is um, uh, kind of trying to wave his arms to uh, prevent the, the ghost from wrapping around him, that was more of an old-fashioned hand-drawn animation uh, right, done yeah. by uh, the great John Van Vliet who's now a a brilliant visual effects supervisor in his own right. So they used a a whole load of techniques. And then, of course, there's a great story where they they got the receptionist from ILM. um, Greta Hicks was her name. And they they did like a, a white face ghosty makeup on her, laid her belly down in a swing and sort of dressed her up in wafty material and then swung her towards the camera. And they used that as a live action element for that ghost that, Swings into the foreground and then transforms into the Angel of Death, which is a Bruce Nicholson composite that blends from Greta's face into one of the death's head skulls that they had left over from the shoot in the UK yeah. that Chris uh, the Chris Wayless had, had done up. And so you've got a whole bunch of different techniques there all to create that very ethereal and very memorable end sequence. So I remember I used to work in post-production in the end of the optical photochemical era in the UK before I came out to work in the States mm-hmm. and um, I remember being around at the time and there was a commercial that the guy that I used to work for was involved with and they were trying to replicate that look the Raiders look of, and they went with hand drawn animation and mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't going to be as good as Raiders Because what they did with Raiders, it was so original looking, but basically it was just spitballing. It was using a lot of, uh, (laughs) you know, wafting a puppet in a water tank. It it derived from like ancient Japanese puppetry. Mm. I don't know if that's where Steve Gawley got the idea from, but, uh, you know. It's just
1: amazing to me, like how many of those they had to put together in a single frame. I mean, they apparently did multiple exposures with the Ghosts. They shoot them all separately and then expose them together to kind of like build pre-composites, essentially, of just the ghosts. And then they put that against the the background plate that was actually shot on set and then roto out where the ghost needed to go behind a rock or a person or that sort of thing. Almost a hundred elements in in a couple of the frames.
3: Yeah, something like that. There There was an anecdote. I'm just going from memory. Because it's very difficult to build up a shot with photochemical composites. Mm. Not only are you dealing with uh, the loss of resolution with each layer, but it's just physically really difficult to pull that off and choreograph it all. So I believe Richard Edland put together a series of well, what we would now call pre-comps which would have been building up multiple passes with the ghosts. Right. Watching the live action, he had to meet and, and just choreographing what he could. And then it was like I don't know, maybe like a dozen or so ghosts in that one pass so that Bruce Nicholson could take that and he'd have one element of like 25 ghosts or something. Yeah, Can I mention hmm. my favorite moment in that whole uh, uh, opening the arc sequence? You can see it in the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark documentary. Mm-hmm. It's when the lightning first strikes the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get that wonderful deep bass thrumming noise and then things start popping and little bits of electricity fly around. <laughs> but then you get these fierce beams of energy uh, that go spearing out across the canyon and mm-hmm. and it hits each of these Nazis like boom, 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 going mm-hmm. through their chest and you see it kind of coming out of their eyes. And what was brilliant about that was that there's a fantastic um, blend of a practical effect and a animated effect introduced optically and mm-hmm. what really sold it i think is that richard headland had the idea of putting projector bulbs yeah. really really intense tiny lights and just physically wired them onto the performers so that the actors could actually physically see these things were going boom boom, 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 boom through mm. the crowd and and it really you know it created a natural lens flare natural, in camera, actually made by a real light.
4: <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> Not mentioning any names. No. <laughs> but
3: but, 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 uh, but you know, it really gives that such a punch and it's very unique. I can't really think of a, of
2: a precedent in film was uh, another great thing yeah, from that documentary and you see them calling out basically the roll call for when people are supposed to be hit with the light uh-huh. and you just see all these guys in rows and just one at a time all you know some of them lighting up and then having to convulse then the other ones lighting up it's it was that was really uh, fun to watch. Yeah and I,
1: I tried to get a um, an interview with, with Chris Wallace and I wasn't able to get in, in touch with him and I, I hope to at some point. Talk to him about a number of things, but uh, yeah. <laughs> one the one thing I was like, okay, he's talked about this 20,000 times, so I'm not going to ask him about this, is the melting head <laughs> of yeah. Todd at the end. yeah. yeah. Of course, it's been documented to death now, but um, there's actually a cool thing on the um, the Blu-ray. I don't, I don't know if it was on a previous DVD or not, but they had uh, Kerner Optical rebuild the effect. So you could kind of see how it was done, hmm. taking the mold of the face and, and painting gelatin into it and, and putting that on top of a skull so that you could then point heat guns at it and melt it. Yeah. But yeah, very cool to see how that was done, even if it's a recreation 30 years later.
3: There's still a lot of curiosity about that effect. Um, Mm. From time to time, uh, it will pop up on special effects forum chat boards. um, Mm. But I think really the definitive answer uh, to how it was done, uh, Don really spells it out. I think if you follow what the Cinefax article shows you, you could get a jump on putting it together in your kitchen if Mm -hmm. you had that air cannon (laughs) and... Thane Morris with a couple of <laughs> shotguns. Oh yeah.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the great Thane Morris. Yeah. We actually interviewed him so you'll be hearing that in a little bit. Yeah. He d- he did all the like the uh, fire and pyro uh, effects uh, that they did at ILM, the the stuff that was done for the effect shots like the uh, pillar of fire that comes out of the arc at the very end.
2: You know, it's arguably risky that, you know, you got people watching this uh, movie, you know, the entire time and then all of a sudden you're just throwing tons of effects at them um <laughs> over the last couple minutes but I think it's a testament to a the fact that you're so on board with everything from characters and story and writing that you're just mm-hmm. totally in and that they were done so effectively. And yeah, I mean the melt the melting head is I mean that's just an image that is just seared onto I think everyone's brains. I mean the exploding <laughs> head fine the other guy I guess his head kinda shrinks but just the right. the blood running down and the it's just one of the greatest images, just from a pure visceral level. Yeah,
1: there was definitely something seared on my brain when when I was, <laughs> what, seven or eight years old. <laughs> There's
3: a great comment from Richard Edland in uh, Don Cho's story that, Mm. You kind of get the feeling that they ran out of time a bit and they had to rush towards the end. Mm. And he says that there's a couple of shots in there he just wishes he could go back and redo. He doesn't actually name them. But the reason why he mentioned that, his big thing for why that sequence is so effective is because of the way it's edited. Mm. And, uh, of course, it's the great Michael Kahn, who's uh, Spielberg's editor on nearly all of his films. But but also, apparently, George Lucas had a real close hand in the the way that entire end sequence was put together. Mm. And the technique that Richard described is that sometimes you get shots that might not be as good as others, but if Mm -hmm. you can... Paste them so that when they appear, they'll pop up in between a couple of really good ones mm-hmm. Before, mm-hmm. before the weak <laughs> shot started to disappoint you. Uh-huh. If you hit them with another really good one after having just given them a really good one, it's like you, you kind of forgive the weak one. <laughs> yeah. Everyone mentions to me that the Nazis flying up the pillar of fire is the, the one that is kind of lets it down a bit, but uh, mm-hmm. I've never really been bothered by that. And I find it no. kind of interesting that... Years later, a lot of people have um, become very critical of visual effects and used it as a, uh, this film's phony. Uh, In fact, (laughs) the term, like, as a bad thing, you know, like, uh, it's not a real film, but because it's got visual effects in it. And the pejorative adjective is CGI. That term Mm. to most people means something bad. Hmm. I don't know if it's just me being idealizing my childhood, but I don't ever remember uh, sitting in a, in a movie theater and having someone shout out that's so optical. (laughs) (laughs) like a bad thing it's kind of hard for me to equate because it's like don't you guys just don't you realize how much work goes into these shots and can't you give them a break and uh exactly what what, what we're putting on screen here is impossible there's no other way of doing this but so i'm very forgiving of the uh, the nazis they were in fact ken dolls Mm. Uh, you know like bobby and ken and uh, Mm -hmm. i believe it was paul houston Lorne Peterson and Thane threw into a, some sort of pyrotechnic furnace.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it said in the article that they they had the model and then they turned it upside down so that the flame could come up into it and then kind of spread along the surface. Yeah, yeah that's very clever.
3: Yeah. A gravity, it's a gravity gag. I mean, it's um, yeah. now probably... I'm gonna use a pejorative uh, reference to modern-day filming. Probably, if you got a younger filmmaker who's grown up very familiar with uh, liquid simulations of digital fire, they probably mm-hmm. wouldn't even consider doing it for real. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were just like, oh, you know, we we'll just we'll just take a, a lidar scan of the set, and then we can uh, do a flow line simulation to uh, to make that look uh, look great, and mm-hmm. probably would look great. But it's kind of fun that they actually got a bunch of candles and blasted <laughs> fire over them, you know. So. <laughs> and i do i have to say also because i'm getting on my high horse now because it does to touch the sure. nerve with me i deal with it every day for work is mm-hmm. there are some great filmmakers out there who really get it they grew mm-hmm. up watching movies like raiders and the people that made raiders loved film and yeah. they instilled that love in a generation of filmmakers who are out there and they know how to call the right shots they know when to use pyro they know when to use a miniature and they mm. know when those things will break down so uh it's not all bad but it's you can really learn a lot from from watching a movie like raiders uh, mm-hmm. the love of film sort of building on itself these people were like, honoring the movies that they loved as kids and and that infused a new generation i think um,
1: and, that, and that's exactly why i do this podcast is you know I, I love this stuff i love the craft that goes into it and so much effort and thought and love that these people put into you know the effects that they're doing that fascinates me that you know these people are so passionate about it and i try to celebrate as much as i can and not you know not nitpick it's not yeah. my place to, to yeah. do that
2: good yeah
1: We're gonna come back in a little bit for more discussion about Raiders of the Lost Ark with Joe and Brian, but for right now, it's time for the optical trivia contest brought to you by Cinefix. What would Summer be without its celluloid superheroes? And what would Cinefix be if they didn't give each its due? So faced with dynamite images from Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, they've decided once again to share the glory and lend their cover to both films. But that's not all. Their Dynamite Summer issue also includes stories on two other summer hits, Godzilla and Maleficent. And there's a special surprise waiting that will blow your mind. An article on the legendary Willis O'Brien and his bitter rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dolly that challenges long-held assumptions about what was at stake and who was to blame. You're not going to want to miss this revelatory expose. Multi-Oscar winner Dennis Muren says a shocking betrayal fit for Extra or TMZ finally gets told in Cinefix, and it's a doozy. Issue 138 is out now, and you can order barcode-free copies with either cover from their online store. Order your copy now at Cinefix.com. Congratulations to Tom Tomlinson of Port Washington, New York for winning the optical episode five contest in which you were asked to name three feature films that Ray Harryhausen worked on. And the answer was, well, I'm sure you can find that list on Wikipedia. I'm not going to list them all. <laughs> but congratulations to Tom for winning. If you want to enter to win a free one-year print subscription to Cinefex magazine and the very last of the gold foil stamped magazine slipcases to keep them in, answer this question. When George Lucas first came up with the name for his pulp action hero, it wasn't Indiana Jones, it was Indiana blank. Fill in the blank and send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com by July 19th, 2014 to enter to win. Find past winners and full contest rules at opticalpodcast.com slash contests. We'll come back to talk with Joe and Brian a little later in the podcast, but right now I have with me Jamie Benning, creator of the Filmumentaries documentary format. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm good. How are you, Mark? Excellent. Thank you so much for being on.
5: It's my pleasure. It's it's always good to talk to somebody that uh, is into similar things to me. (laughs) Um, So what exactly is a Filmumentary? Okay well it's first of all it's a made up word um <laughs> obviously and a bit of a mouthful but um what it is is uh I sort of invented this format where you have the film running as it normally would be but it's kind of interspersed with deleted scenes or turn it takes audio interviews um it could mm. audio commentary so it could be archival stuff could be new stuff that i've done myself mm. and it kind of shows the film unfolding as you're watching it but you still get to watch the film but just in a new and hopefully interesting way
1: that's very cool how
5: um, <laughs> i guess the question
1: should be how have you been able to do this without the studios getting angry with you about it
5: <laughs> <laughs> well i think actually uh, and this is a question i've been asked many times and i think actually it's they, they've kind of grown up the studios, I think, in a way. They realize now that mm. as long as a product doesn't damage their product, you know, a fan product uh, could come along and say something very anti them. Maybe they'd have a problem then with the copyright. But I think they realize now that actually if it's not doing the franchise any any harm, then, then why come down on it hard? You know, I'm not saying that my stuff has help fill their pockets but there was one point when i released stars begins where it was on like 60 websites or something on the front page of aol and <laughs> you know that's not going to do them any harm with the star wars logo left right and center as it already is but you know mm-hmm. every little helps i guess <laughs> i think part of the reason that, that lucasfilm and paramount um have not uh, come knocking on my door is probably because you know i always try and state whenever i'm interviewed that i don't make any money on these i never have and i never will unless i get permission mm-hmm. um, through through some other means and they are just kind of love letters to my favorite films they're not they're not money making schemes i think people have a hard time believing that the cynical people out there but i do genuinely just do these cuz i enjoy it um but uh, yeah, yeah it would be nice to make a bit of money now and again i did get <laughs> interviewed actually for a documentary that's coming out in october where they did pay me a little a little thank you amount mountain, an envelope at the end of the interview but <laughs> that's the only time I've ever received any money related to this and you know it wasn't directly related so i
1: I actually just watched that last night star wars begins and uh the jaws Mm -hmm. inside jaws is that's the name of that yeah Mm -hmm. that's amazing amount of stuff that, that you've got in there and new interviews with uh some of the people involved as well right
5: yeah well that's what i've been trying to do with each project that i've done i've tried to introduce something new and sort of ramp things up a little bit so with both Indiana Jones, the Raiding the Lost Ark, I called it, and mm-hmm. Inside Jaws. I did some of my own interviews. And, you know, it's a direction I'm kind of heading in with it, hopefully, that um I, I can create lots more new material to, to sit alongside that archival stuff as well.
1: Right. And we're discussing uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark in this episode. And I thought it was really cool the um interviews that you got with uh, Wolf Kaler. Yeah, that how yeah, you that's his right. last
5: name? Yeah, yeah. He was great actually. I one of the guys that follows me on on Twitter, he said, Hey, I go to these conventions and I collect autographs and um Kayla's gonna be there. <laughs> And I said, oh, the next one. And I said, oh, right. And he said, do you want me to ask him if he'd do an interview? And I said, well, that'd be great, Mark. Thank you. So he, he approached him and uh, Wolf said, sure, no problem. Here's my email address. Oh, here's my phone number, actually. <laughs> and uh, this was a couple of years ago now. And I just picked up the phone and gave him a call. And he was really gracious and really willing to be involved. And um, this is the thing that I found, actually, along through doing both Indiana Jones and JAWS is that People that are involved in the film are very proud of it and they want to talk about it, you know. um, It gives them a chance to talk about it, perhaps above and beyond you know, Spielberg and Lucas and Harrison Ford getting a chance to talk about the film every time it's discussed. Mm-hmm. The people that were involved in it in some smaller amount can have a have a talk as well. And Wolf was great. He lived in North London at the time and I popped up there and we met in a cafe and just had a <laughs> chat for a couple of hours. Oh, very nice. Um, it's great. Yeah. What
1: actually prompted you starting on this project or these projects in the first place?
5: Well, the first one I did was um, Building Empire, which looked at The Empire Strikes Back. And mm-hmm. Part of the reason I did it, it, was kind of twofold really. A, it was to learn Final Cut Pro because I work in the TV industry. Mm-hmm. But I use a live editing tool and I wanted to look at more post-production stuff. So I thought I need something I can get my teeth into. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point with uh, my Mac then that I could rip a DVD and I could get hold of the editing software relatively cheap. I think it was like 250 quid or something at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just set about seeing what I could make if i can make like the ultimate commentary empire strikes back seemed to be the perfect candidate because i knew there was material out there there's lots of material and at that time i was i joined a forum about star wars fan films and Mm -hmm. people connect together and they swap things you know i had a documentary that was only shown in the uk and a german guy had one that was only shown in germany and you'd Mm -hmm. find that if you spliced five seconds from the german one and five seconds from the uk one that it would be a seamless 10 second sequence because they'd used (laughs) different portions so it's a real kind of jigsaw puzzle putting it all together but it was it was great fun and that led on to returning to Jedi, which I did about Return of the Jedi and then Stars Begins and then Raiders and then Jaws. So, and hopefully something in the not too distant future as well
1: are you planning on this just continuing to be a hobby project or are you looking to doing possibly an official behind the scenes shot
5: for dvds or blu-rays that would be the dream i mean you know i've always been interested in documentaries and making of documentaries is something i've always liked because you know they're about movies which i've always loved knowing about behind the scenes since i was a kid since i had my first Mm -hmm. making of empire strikes back book i think it was um but yeah the the plan is to move into that arena if possible and i have been approached by a well-known Hollywood director last August Mm. and I was invited onto a movie set and met some genuine movie stars and You know, there was all this, we're going to make this, we're going to do this, we're going to do books, we're going to do film you know. Um, And of course, it's Hollywood. So there's a lot of that goes on. So I'm not getting myself too excited. (laughs) But in the last couple of weeks, actually, we've been talking to a production company. We've been talking about budgets. We've been talking about the studio we're approaching. We're actually a week too early probably. Probably for this interview, because in about a week's time, <laughs> I'm expecting to hear back from quite a big studio about potentially doing um, an official film documentary. I won't say who it is and what it is yet, but um, mm-hmm. it's a bit different, this one, if it comes off. It's, it'll be quite unexpected. <laughs> a lot of people will go huh? That movie really? But what I'm hoping it will do is it will prove not only to myself and the studio, but also to the potential audience that you could do this on any film, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can adapt the the format for any film and we will see. We'll see if it works right now. I've got about half a dozen interviews lined up, Mm. maybe eight interviews lined up. As soon as I get the green light, I'll just be jumping on the phone and potentially, out to Europe and um, over to America to do some interviews. So fingers crossed it'll happen. You know, these things obviously can get to that point. Sure. and then just crumble so I'm not allowing myself to get too excited yet and I'm not relying on it as an income because I have a, a job already that I love doing so sure yeah we'll see keep your fingers crossed for me
1: yeah absolutely and uh, once you uh, find out more about that and are ready to make it public we'd love to hear about it and yeah share it with absolutely our listeners.
5: I'll, I'll be telling everybody who'll listen because I've not been able to say anything for so long now it's been <laughs> well it'll be a year in uh in August so oh wow how do you go about like finding i mean obviously you say you
1: kind of like swap some stuff with uh you know other people in this group but are is there more like uh, how do you do the research for for finding these behind the scenes bits and
5: Sure. I mean, it's, you know, it is like an adventure really. I start off by looking online and then that leads me to books and then that might lead me to people who wrote the books. It might Mm -hmm. lead me to people who know somebody who was involved in the film and they might have a connection there. And I might talk to them on the phone but not interview them because they don't want to be interviewed but I'll find out another lead. Mm -hmm. Um, It just goes on and on. I mean, the the internet has obviously been a, a great tool in it. You know, like on the Raiders one, for instance, I found out about the car they used via the prop store had some of the photos and then I found out where the car was made and I spoke to them about what they did etc etc and they sent me some photos of their time working on Raiders and uh, you know I'm looking at my bookshelf next to me right now and it's full of books about Jaws and full of books about Star Wars and full of books about Raiders (laughs) and old magazines old uh, sci-fi magazines and film magazines all the way back to the 70s and 80s so yeah you know it is proper research but it's it's my hobby, you know, if it ever gets to the point where I get paid for it, then all all the better, but it's not what I did it for in the first place. I just did it as a hobby, something I enjoy. What's been the response
1: publicly? What have you heard from people who have been watching
5: these? Well, it's always been very positive. I mean, you get the odd person that, you know, it's just, oh, it's just the same old crap rehashed, you know, but Uh now that I'm doing my own interviews as well, it, it isn't the same stuff. And also with the Jaws one, I was able to track down a guy who'd worked on a 25th anniversary Jaws documentary that didn't get completed and he very graciously gave me all of his interview material to use so there's stuff on there that even the most diehard Jaws fans have never heard even if they've read about it or heard about it before they've not heard about it in this form from the horse's mouth kind of thing so Mm -hmm. yeah so the response has always been very positive you know I'm really sort of pleased when I hear from people like there was a guy in Canada who was using my stuff in his film studies class There was a guy who was using it in America for his research class. So he was talking about how you can research from disparate sources and put together an understandable narrative. So he was using my work for that. Because, you know, my stuff's taken from 1975 and... 2011 and 1984 and Mm -hmm. from radio and from tv and from books and everywhere else cd-roms even so wow that's kind of been the the most pleasing stuff but then you know feedback from the press is always nice and getting to hear from people who are in the business you know um Mm -hmm. people who are editors and special effects guys and people that have worked on films is always nice but also like me i'm just a fan you know and hearing from people that are just fans Mm-hmm. And I've always loved those movies. And one of the ones that really was pleasing, and I've had this several times with uh, Stars Begins, was um, people saying, you know, I'd kind of got fed up with Stars and Disillusion, but you've taken me right back to how it felt when I was, you know, seven, or eight or nine years old when I mm-hmm. first saw it. And I rushed out and bought the DVD. <laughs> and, you know, that that's nice to hear. So uh, that's why I did it. I'd got a bit to his star wars and it's ever thinning surface being spread wide <laughs> across the world through so many different formats and i thought right. what i love about the films is how they were made and and the films themselves you know and maybe the kenner figures but um <laughs> which i have a couple of looking at me right now if i can do that for someone then that's great and you know having a dialogue with people because my you know, obviously my audience is not big enough for me so that I can't respond to people. So where where people do leave comments on Vimeo mm-hmm. or send me a, an email through my website, I try and always respond and you know thank them and get in a bit of a dialogue because you just don't know where these things are going to lead either. You know, so mm-hmm. it's always good to hear that people are enjoying them as much as I do because I've watched them back recently with a friend of mine and I'd sort of forgotten what I'd done in some places mm. and quite enjoyed them myself. So <laughs> that was the plan originally. So the, at least I've pleased myself anyway. So what's the
1: most difficult part of putting these together? Is there
5: something in the research or, or just it's finding the time? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got two daughters, um, who are eight and six. I have uh-huh. a wife with, um, a baby. We've have a baby on the way as well during oh, wow. October. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. And I also fly around the world doing my job. I work on, um, mostly on sports broadcast. My, my mm. regular gig is Formula One motor racing. So oh, nice. I travel around. I just got back from Monaco at the weekend and uh, next week I'm off to Montreal and that goes on to Europe and then Singapore and all over the place. So mm. the advantage that I have with that is that I do spend a lot of time on planes and I do spend a lot of time on coaches and in hotels <laughs> and on trains. So I have time to read, I have time to research and make notes and I'm often thinking of things you know uh, in the middle of a plane journey and i'll note them down on my laptop or on my phone and there's always ways to squeeze it in but the difficulty is when i get home and if i have a long period of time at home Mm. uh, because this job kind of takes me away for 18 weeks a year the rest of the time i'm at home i'll do other jobs while i'm here because i'm freelance but the difficulty is i want to spend the time with my wife and my kids I usually I give myself a sort of a deadline, a self-imposed deadline, mm-hmm. um, which I try to meet, but that, that can be the, the most difficult, bit. the research part of it's fun. The editing side of it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's all fun. I'll, I enjoy it all, but it's, it's the time people always say to me, you know, I think people thought I was, you know, some fat virgin living in his parents' basement. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were quite surprised when they found out I was 37 years old and living in London and, you know, a uh, British guy. So, um, so yeah, I mean, as I said, it's all fun. It's just, it's difficult trying to, more and more difficult trying to squeeze it in. But, uh, mm. I think if, if, if it does ever come to the point where I'm getting paid to do it as well, then there's obviously more of an impetus there to get things done. And to a higher standard but ultimately mm-hmm. you have to release these things into the into the wild as it were and right. get get reactions based on what they are. i'm not gonna sit there fiddling with them for the rest of my life sure george lucas style <laughs> i release them they are what they are so what's
1: the story in the first few um the title card comes up and it says
5: "Jembe Devdar," something oh, yeah. like that instead of yeah. jamie benning <laughs> This was, this was when I did my first couple of Star Wars ones. I didn't uh-huh. want to use my name because I was scared about copyright. <laughs> so my sister said to me, well, you can do your Star Wars name. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you take the first two letters of your first name. No, the first three letters of your first name, the first two <laughs> of your surname, uh-huh. then the first three of your mother's maiden name, and the first three of the town you were born in. <laughs> Mine happened to come out as Jambi Davda <laughs> um, for some people, it works, and like me, for some people, it doesn 't really work, but it was kind of just to create some anonymity. But as soon as um, I got interviewed on BBC Radio Four over here on the film program, they kind of introduced me as Jamie Benning, and that was that you know <laughs> so um, and since then i haven 't had a, a bad reaction, hopefully so. <laughs> Very nice. You have to do your styles.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have figure that out. <laughs> cool. Um, so, where can people find out more about your work?
5: Okay, so there's filmumentaries.com. Have a go at spelling it, and Google will probably work out the rest. Okay. Um, or you can go onto Vimeo.com and look up for Jamie Benning or Styles Begins or Inside Jaws. One of those will take you there. And I'm also on Twitter at JamieSWB and uh yeah i i've been a little bit quiet on twitter and my website lately because i'm still waiting for this uh this deal to come off before i mm. before i say anything i don't want to curse it you know sure <laughs> but yeah uh, now and again i'll i'll tweet about a film related thing and uh have a nice chat with somebody like-minded so yeah if uh if you follow at jamie swb i'll be on there
1: very cool. And we'll put those links in the show notes uh, so people can watch reading the Lost Ark and your other filmy mentories. Cool. Thank you so much, Jamie, for being on. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure. And for those of you who are just dying to know, my Star Wars name is Marbo Swelex. I think that sounds pretty authentic. This music and all of the music in this episode of the podcast is by friend of the podcast, Digital Drew. Find more about his music at DigitalDrew.com. Still to come is more chat about Raiders of the Lost Ark with Joe Fordham and Brian Newell. But next up, we talk with Thane Morris, special effects legend and pyrotechnician. I've got Thane Morris with me here, who is a special effects—that's mechanical effects—guy, and he's been around for an enormous number of blockbusters in Hollywood. How are you doing, Thane? Doing fine, thank you. So, so how did you first get into this business?
0: Well, I was in the '60s, and I was working my way through school. Mm-hmm. as a taking chemistry and hanging out in the theater department and the show came to boulder colorado called uh, how the west was one and they needed a guy that wasn't afraid of explosives and with chemistry i'm not afraid of explosives so <laughs> <laughs> they needed a local hire and i started there i did uh, work worked on how the west was one back in the 60s wow did a lot of legit theater over the years and uh ended up in San Francisco, mm-hmm. actually Oakland, with the only pyro license. I had a great sleeper job. I was a stage manager for the Paramount Theater. <laughs> and ILM called me up, and they needed to work on Empire Strikes Back. So I went over and did that for them, and I replaced myself on the stage.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Came back, and several weeks later, they called me back and said they were starting two other films of uh, Raiders and Dragon Slayer, but I come over and work on that. And hmm. The rest, they say, is history.
1: <laughs> so you did both like physical uh, rig kind of stuff as well as pyrotechnics?
0: Pyrotechnics and the physical rig stuff,
1: yes. Like for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you worked on the... Um, was it any of the explosions in the film, or is it just stuff that was in the effects stuff that ILM did?
0: Uh, the post-production work that ILM did, yes.
1: Okay, so like the big pillar of fire at the end that comes out of the ark.
0: top blowing up, the Nazis getting burned up when the fire separation goes around Marion and Indy, all of that stuff.
1: How did you get the fire to kind of curve around like that?
0: <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you make sheet metal forms mm-hmm. and enforce the fire around that sheet metal Mm -hmm. You're filming from the edge of it, so you won't see the edge of it. You paint it black, of course, and you won't see the edge of it. And shoot it at high speed. It was only probably six feet high.
1: Huh? I read in the Cinefax article about it that you also had to do a shot where... It was it pointing straight down at the explosion with the lid of the arc? It was, that was actually yeah. in there in the shot?
0: The arc top itself, I still got it. Uh, oh, the yeah. arc top <laughs> is about two by three inches. Wow. And it had to be turning, spinning as it went up. Right? Mm-hmm. they always add neat little things like that. Sure. And it was it had to write a column of fire up. So I built a box with a high-speed electric motor on it and balanced a square box that would hold the top with a shelf in it to keep it from too close to the bottom and then uh, made a little gun that would sit down in there, shoot a wad of clay into the back of the top to send it up and mm-hmm. a secondary ignition for smokeless powder to make the fire Huh. And so you light the fire shoot to that, and of course it has to go through slip rings because this thing is not turning at like 20,000 RPM. <laughs> wow. And uh, I figured that uh, the odds of it working the first time was about one in two million, and I hit the camera lens on the first shot. <laughs> wow. So, you know, you got to be lucky. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it sounds like on doing the explosion of Belloc's head, there there was a lot of trial and error in there.
0: Well, there always is on these things. Yeah, that was pretty funny. It wasn't bad enough. It wasn't bad enough. And then, uh, okay, fine. So I put about a quarter of blood in that thing and <laughs> got it with two 12-gauge shotguns that I'd rigged to fire electrically so that it, the face itself was made out of gelatin and uh-huh. it kept coming off in a whole piece. I'd blow the head up, no problem, but the face would come off. There's a whole piece. I know. So uh, I had to figure out a way to tear that up, so I made special shotgun loads, and we shot it in two different directions with a shotgun at the same time they're blowing up the head. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that they weren't real happy with it. It was too gory, so they put fire (laughs) in front of it so you couldn't see how much blood
1: was in it. Uh How do you make the set safe to work on when you've got multiple shotguns and explosives? And
0: how do you make the set safe? You keep yes. everybody out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they put myself and Ted Minky, who was theoretically my boss, but we were actually partners. Mm-hmm. And they put us in an area they called the bomb bay. <laughs> <And> <laughs> nobody came into it. When we get into Dragon City, I'll tell you a story about that. But anyway, the uh, nobody came into our space. And we just backed the, uh, the sheetrock wall behind it, so we put three-quarter plywood up in it. And uh, the shotgun loads were fairly light, so they wouldn't penetrate the three-quarter plywood.
1: Okay. So what's the story uh, that you have about Dragon Slayer and the, the Bombay?
0: <laughs> we had a, a woman uh, working there, uh, Laura Buff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they had given her the job to go around to, to check on everybody and make sure they were working. <laughs> and we were shooting Dragon's plane, the bleeding fire, right. uh, in different angles so that they could just cut it in wherever they wanted to. And, uh, we were using propane and lack of podium, and it was overpressurizing this. Uh, 20 by 40 room that we were in and it popped your ears because we were blowing a fire 40 feet across this room. Wow. And it it popped your ears. So I took the door off hung the curtain up. She <laughs> <laughs> so walked back into the area and of course you're shooting in total darkness so it's lights out, roll camera speed, <laughs> cut, <laughs> uh right, mhm uh, everybody okay, yeah, well, it was you know there's one camera one, uh Ted, and I, in the room that was it, uh, uh-huh. everybody okay, yeah, everybody's all right, and we hear whimpering outside the door <laughs> or go out there, and here's this this lady curled up in a fetal position, crying <laughs> oh, no. and she she looked up and said, You're still alive, <laughs> so she walked down the hall into a Totally dark room, pushed the curtain back, stuck her head in, and this huge fireball fired. And she, she, of course, now is blinded. And he thought everybody in the room had died. Got her up off the floor saying, know everybody's fine, Uh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Poor little thing, sent in the wrong place.
1: (laughs) That's great. There was a a bit in the CineFix article that I read that uh, said that you made the special smoke there was like one cloud in Dragon Slayer that it like it had to be one big cloud oh, that
0: okay. spread out. yeah the, the, the wizard stands on the shore and waves his arms and this cloud comes ripping at him yeah it's an ideal shot for a cloud tank mm. but you know what you know what a cloud tank is but yeah. they wouldn't let us use the cloud tank because they were using invaders mm. so we had to figure out a way out of it so um we took uh, clear, absolutely clear plastic, mm-hmm. made a frame that would hold the plastic at an angle, set the camera up on the high tripod looking down over that angle, and then use pyrotechnic smoke and run it up over that clear plastic mm-hmm. against black so that uh, it looked like this thing was a uh, bigger, gray, and black cloud coming straight at you. Hmm. and we did it pyrotechnically rather than in a cloud tank which is the right way to do it
1: what would you make that kind of smoke out of what
0: how do you create that oh that's uh it's really nasty smoke it's a hexachloroethane based smoke with a metal powder in it and you're making a highly chlorinated poisonous smoke when you do that but uh, oh. <laughs> it's the only thing that's really dense so uh it was again me, the cameraman, and Ted in the room mm-hmm. with a along with a big fan, and it had a big roll door on it. So we would shoot a take, roll the door open, run outside, <laughs> <laughs> clear the air out, go back in, do another take. Mm-hmm. If you're an, a mechanical effects guy, you're going to breathe things you shouldn't do anyway.
1: I suppose so. <laughs> the company that you used to work for and now you own is Roger George Rentals, correct?
0: They were a rental house. Roger helped me out early on. Mm -hmm. He was an effects guy that started in the industry the year I was born. Wow. And he was the king of the low budget back in the day. He was here and had this rental house. Mm And uh, I guess it's 15, 16, 17 years ago, he wanted to sell it, so I bought it. And uh, now I run that, along with MP Associates, which is a manufacturer of explosive materials.
1: So what kind of stuff do you provide to the studios? Uh,
0: basically rain, wind, fire, water, all sorts of different size Fan from a standard low Richardson E fan all the way up to a 454 shooting motor with a, a huge blade on it.
1: Wow. What do they use those for? Is it just for like simulating storms or? Yeah. Wind. Yeah.
0: You'll see them. They'll use them. There's a rainstorm, high wind, you know, we're going to simulate a tornado or a hurricane. They'll rent one or more of those fans and uh, a rain bar, which is, uh, well, we we'll go up to 100 feet long. You hang them off a crane, dump the rain down, blow, blow the sand through it, and you've mm. got one hell of a storm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> we have the quiet electric sands. That will be rented to TV shows or movies where they're working inside on set, and the curtains on the window are blowing, and the, the things don't make any noise, so they'll set it up in the corner, and mm. the the curtains will sit there and flop, and they'll run around for days, and just sit there and blow on it. Mm. They were originally uh, invented by a guy by the name of Ritter. Everybody calls him the Ritter fan, but uh, <laughs> there's two or three other manufacturers of them. The blades were all made by a guy named the name of who is out of business. And they're a special blade with a reverse tip on them so that the wind don't slide off the end of the blade and pop. Mm. You know, when the blade's turning, you know, the air will slide off the end and you get that right. noise. Right. If the air can't slide off the tip of the blade, it makes it stop. Same thing that they put those winglets on airplanes for. Huh. It keeps the air from spiraling. Interesting. As it comes off the end of the prop.
1: And you do breakaway stuff as well?
0: We don't do breakaway glass here. Oh, you don't? Okay. That's Hollywood Breakaway or Alfonso Breakaway. <laughs> They're good guys. They deal with the breakaway glass. It takes quite a bit of equipment, and it isn't easy, and I never liked messing with it when I had to make breakaway. And mm. so <laughs> I them do it.
1: Well, I thought I saw in, um, on your website there were, like, bags of uh, glass shards. That sort of thing? Okay, is that rubber? That, that's rubber
0: glass. Oh, okay. Uh, anytime you see a uh, window broken in the movies and then the guy is rolling around on the floor afterwards fighting in it, right. uh, you probably don't want to put a, a main brand actor in uh, a bunch of broken glass. <laughs> He's probably not going to be very happy with it. So they simply break the glass and drop the stunt guy through it sweep all the glass up and scatter the, the silicon rubber glass around so it looks like it was there before. Uh. And then put the, put the actors out there and it won't cut you. It, it's rubber. It's soft.
1: And there's a YouTube video that I saw that showed you showing how like you put something on your hand and then you dragged the rubber glass across your hand and it turned red like it was bleeding?
0: How- okay, yeah, that's an old chemical trick. It's called AV blood. It's an indicator for iron is what it is. Mm. You have one substance with quite a bit of iron in it. The other substance that has the indicator in it, the indicator is clear. You can put that on a knife or on a piece of glass or something like that, drag it across. It looks like you're bleeding. Mm-hmm. Mm. They use it regularly for cutting people's throats. You know, you take a knife and grind the edge so it's absolutely dull. Right. And then put it on somebody's throat and swing at them with a knife, touch them on the throat, and it'll make it look like they're bleeding.
1: Huh. I always thought that was done with blood on the back of the knife or something
0: like that. Yeah. Uh, no, it's usually the, the old gory movies they used to make. We would make them. I've got a few of them here you make a knife out of thin aluminum, and then you run a uh, small tube down through it and put a bulb on the end of it so that you can hold the knife out, squeeze the bulb, and the blood will rip off the knife. Right. You get to do that this day and age, they give you an X rating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what's the weirdest gag that you've ever had to rig? So, we
0: probably shouldn't. Well, okay. (laughs) You can cut this out if you like. Okay a um, pop man from one of the daytime TV shows came here and this guy has to stand in front of this young woman on stage and get an erection. (laughs) That's probably about the weirdest thing I had to do. Uh, Use a piece of uh, surgical rubber tubing and a bicycle inflator that he can put in his pocket and and squeeze and then inflate the surgical rubber tubing. (laughs) Well, you know.
1: That certainly qualifies.
0: <laughs> That's not as weird a thing as I've ever done. <laughs> I made it for him. He was happy with it. <laughs> but you, if it's impossible, dangerous, or stupid, they come look into the mechanical effects guy, and very often it's impossibly dangerous and stupid. <laughs> and we got to figure out how to make it work. <laughs> And not hurt anybody in the process. That's the whole idea. We're making movies here. We're not trying to build a dam to save the L.A. Basin from flooding. We're just making a movie. Right. And if you get really lucky, five people will watch it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you worked on a bunch of other films throughout the 80s and 90s as well. Yeah,
0: let's see. Empire Strikes Back, Raiders, right? Lost Clark, Dragon Sawyer, Poltergeist. Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters, E.T., uh, star trek two of con master's universe monster squad uh oh, wow. twenty ten uh I don't know it's uh, it's all die hard that academy Award nomination for die hard oh yes, uh, yeah, I forgot <laughs>
1: <laughs> very nice oh it says here you also worked on uh, big trouble in little China,
0: big trouble in little China, yeah, primarily there uh I was uh prosthetic or the as we call them, the rubber room the guys that make all of the rubber molds and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I was a supervisor for that particular section.
1: So is that like the three winds guys when like one of them blows up and kind of yeah. becomes this?
0: Yeah, that's that the stuff we were doing. And the uh, funny round sun looking thing. And, you know, <laughs> it, was one of, it wasn't one of the best movies I've ever worked on.
1: Oh, uh, it's kind of a personal favorite of mine, but...
0: Okay, I, I never liked it. Oh, really? Oh, well. Of course, when I got there, got out of the script of E.T., I couldn't figure out why I did make that thing. <laughs> is there... That shows how much I know.
1: <laughs> is there any one of the films that you worked on that you think is, maybe not your favorite, but maybe the, the most enjoyable to work on? Or?
0: I enjoyed working on Die Hard. That was fun. Yeah. it was. It was hard and it was fun. I enjoyed working on Raiders and Dragon Slayer. You know, Mm -hmm. they were all fun. They weren't fun, I believe.
1: I haven't read the Cinefax article on Die Hard yet, but how was, I assume the the big explosion on the rooftop was a a miniature
4: or?
0: Well, the big explosion on the rooftop was actually, part of it was done in live action. Oh, really? Uh, We had to do it again in miniature with the helicopter coming off. Right. And that was a complicated shot. We got it in take two, but, you know, they were all fairly complicated, a lot of different crazy things to deal with in that. And it goes down to taking cigarette paper and cutting them in a minute or eight and a half by 11 pieces and (laughs) dropping them off of the uh, building so that they look like the paper floating out of that building after it blows up. (laughs) You know, I mean, it it goes clear down to that point. Very complicated shot for uh, 2010 was when the two ships separate and that bridge floats away. Mm-hmm. The bridge sections that we used were made out of plastic and were about four inches on our side. They're triangles. Mm-hmm. And we had to figure out how to make them move very smoothly out of the way. So we used motion control motor with different size pulleys mm-hmm. and the thread attached to it, which you cannot see. Then start the motor and pull it. And in order to keep the wind from blowing on it, we put it inside the cloud tank, which is a big glass box. Mm-hmm. That was about a two day project. Wow. For about three seconds in the film. <laughs> so they, if I put everything together that I've done, I think I might have 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: it always amazes me going back through just to see how long people have worked on this stuff that only amounts to a couple of seconds in the film. And
0: it's just. Oh, Yeah. You know, and back in the photochemical days, mm-hmm. we didn't have the option of just drawing it. We had to actually do whatever it was, miniature or otherwise. Right. And the standard joke around boss film and ILM was fix it in Roto, but it was a joke <laughs> because you know the portable thing in Roto is going to take them, you know, twelve, sixteen hours to fix a C stand that you left in the shot. Right. Now it takes you fifteen seconds. The CG has put an eraser on the pencil. <laughs> Back when we used to fly people, Boy Who Could Fly and Poltergeist too mm-hmm. come to mind. And we're flying Joe Bad Williams and Craig T. Nelson with uh, wires that were smaller than a pencil lead, way smaller than a pencil lead. Mm. Craig weighs about 220 pounds or did then. And so each wire would hold 220 pounds. So you're constantly worried about him doing something silly and shock loading that wire because then it'll snap and down he comes. <laughs> and you can see his career and your career going out to window. <laughs> <laughs> now you can take a piece of 3H cable and paint it bright orange and they can take it out. Mm. You know, makes it easy.
1: You don't have to hide it.
0: No. And if you want to fly some guy over New York City, you just draw him in. You don't have to fly him. Mm. Makes it much, much simpler.
4: Mm.
0: Of course, in the, back in the day, we thought we were doing a big job with 200 shots in the movie, and now 200 shots won't even make the cut. Yeah, I'm in the Academy and I'm on that board, and uh, if it's got 200 shots in it, we, it's worth an honorable mention in the book. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as far as it gets. Oh wow! You know. <laughs> They're doing 1,800 to 2,500 shots in a movie. Holy cow. Of course, that's why the screen credits for the CG people are a half hour long. (laughs) Because there are just so many people.
1: Yeah, definitely. But your business is still predominantly on the physical effects side of things, correct?
0: Physical effects, yeah. There are people that understand that the physical effects actually, you get a better look from it. Mm -hmm. It's easier or usually cheaper. Mm-hmm. so we're still going into our way
1: I'm really happy to have you guys still there
0: I'm technically retired except I'm not smart enough to get rid of these businesses so uh, <laughs> I'm 71 years old I don't know whether I could stand up for 12 hours anymore <laughs> it's a young man's game
1: so where can uh, people go to find out more about your business
0: uh, www.rogergeorge.com it's a pretty good website I think And uh, the pyrotechnic business, well, you don't want to tell uh, somebody where to go get their own bombs. So uh, (laughs) uh, it's not advertised. There's no website. The phone number is even unlisted for that. Mm. If you don't know where to go, you can't find anything about it. Interesting.
1: Well, thank you so much, Thane, for being on.
0: You're certainly welcome.
1: If you'd like to help support the show and fund research and development for the second season of the podcast, that's episode 7 through 12, plus the new website that we're building, you can donate by buying a t-shirt at booster.com slash optical podcast. It also helps if you share that with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for your support. And now back to talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark with Joe Fordham and Brian Newell.
3: I had a couple other things I wanted to bring okay. up. In your discussions about Raiders of the Lost Ark, have you sort of talked about the legends of the filmmaking journey that they did? There's one in particular. No. I thought I knew everything there was to know about Raiders. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, when I saw Spielberg speak at the Cinerama Dome, I mean, the guy's a great storyteller period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he really, and he can really hold an audience and spin a yarn. Mm-hmm. But he was able to come up with some interesting anecdotes. And I think one of the most interesting stories that everyone seems to know, because it's sort of like an IMDB bullet point, mm-hmm. is a story about how Indy came to pull the gun on the Arab swordsman. Oh yes, right, of course. <laughs> it's like everyone could kind of like roll their eyes thinking they knew everything about that. I thought I knew everything about it. I've certainly seen Spielberg speak about it before and Harrison Ford. Sure. And I recently read this book, which is uh, the memoirs of Vic Armstrong, the stuntman. And he put a different spin on that yeah. story. Please do share. Vic was working with Glenn Randall on the movie and Vic did a lot of doubling for Harrison Ford. And infamously, everyone got very ill uh, when they were in Tunisia and they, they all had... <laughs> terrible problems with their uh uh with their digestive system digestive system thank you and, they didn't um, have the uh,
1: trunk case full of uh spaghettios that spielberg had
3: no uh, so the primary thing on spielberg's mind was um he wanted to leave he wanted to go home he'd had enough of shooting in tunisia mm-hmm. meanwhile the stunt team peter diamond was the fight arranger mm-hmm. he specializes in he's a great uh, swordsman uh, worked with Terry Richards, the, the big stuntman who plays the Arab swordsman, mm-hmm. and Harrison and, and Vic. And they had worked out the choreography for that particular fight sequence of, you know, Spielberg calls it the, the quintessential whip versus sword fight to end <laughs> all whip versus sword fights. And they had worked out that it was going to take four days to shoot as storyboarded. Wow. Now, the day they came around to start shooting that, Spielberg says, I've got to leave I'm going to be leaving by 3 p.m. And they were saying, well, we, we've planned this fantastic fight for you, Stephen." And, like, and, and then he like, said, no, I'm leaving. And Dave Tomblin, <laughs> this is a name. This is, the reason I'm bringing this up is the name Dave Tomblin, another great unsung hero of Raiders of the Lost Ark um who who is no longer with us but he was one of the greatest first assistant directors that walked the planet and you can see him on the making of raiders documentary he's the one in the raven saloon with the megaphone and he says now you're all gonna be good actors (laughs) (laughs) a a gruff kind of tough no-nonsense british guy and he said to spielberg you've got to reconsider this this is going to be a fantastic moment for the film and spielberg said no and then, so and then I'm leaving. Said, and Tom, Dave Tomblin then said, well it's stupid to even bother of shooting this routine. Why don't you just pull out the pull out the gun and have him shoot him? <laughs> Dave Tomblin, the first assistant director. And then Spielberg said, Ah, hey, let's try it. <laughs> So it's a kind of an elongated version of the legend, but I was fascinated to read that because I thought it was just like literally they were shooting it, and then Harrison said, "You know, Stephen, let's just yeah, forget it." But it was a little bit more involved in that, hmm. and they, they actually did plan it and they storyboarded it all out, and they were ready to shoot, it, and it was going to take four days to
2: shoot. But right. uh, and, and there uh, are some a few uh, bits of it. I think the, the rehearsal in that. In some of the documentary, you can see them running around. But yeah, it is funny because I think Harrison did say in that that it was a combination of his and Spielberg's ideas. So that's really <laughs> interesting that it sort of became, uh, yeah. you know, mythical exactly. and that there was, there was more to it. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, well print the legend and, uh, and it has accumulated that it's sort of like taken a snowball effect because these poor guys have had to talk to journalists for, you know, for all of their careers about this and they're kind of tired of telling the story. But, <laughs> sure. so, so they have a short version, but I find it really <laughs> fascinating to find that the, that the truth is still sort of un, you know, gradually unpeeling. <laughs> out there
1: <laughs> Well, so much of theatricality is taking you know bits of a true story and reducing it down to something that
3: <laughs> right. is uh, more entertaining in a short period of time. Have you ever seen the uh, the strange storyboards depicting Tote with a robot arm?
1: No, no, I had heard about that, but I've never seen it.
3: Uh, they're in the Rinzler book, and if you, uh, well, huh. you should probably clarify, they're, they're in the complete making of Indiana Jones by J. W. Rinzler. I haven't read through all of that yet. It's but. a big book, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but I first saw them in the Raiders of the Lost Ark illustrated screenplay, which I think came out mm. uh, sort of that summer. It's quite a bit of merchandising. It came out when the movie did. Not not as much as Star Wars, but yeah. the, there were these storyboards, and I particularly remember from the truck chase of Tote, depicted in a completely different way, obviously before they cast him. Mm. He's got a bald head and the Nazi trench coat, and he's got this weird contraption, like, clamped to his bald head that seems to Hmm. be embedded in his skull and his right arm i think it is is extended and from the forearm down it's a a big sort of cyborg looking machine gun and is shooting (laughs) at you know like a machine gun at back at indy (laughs) it's like that's so wrong (laughs) yeah thank goodness apparently when they were conceptualizing the film it was going to be a grander movie they were going to mm. have things in it that didn't make it to the screen, but um, Ron Cobb, who's a, a brilliant conceptual designer and artist, um, most famous for the work uh, designing the uh, uh, the terrestrial spaceships in Alien, mm-hmm. he came on board and uh, did some a, f- a few designs. And there's one drawing of Tote, huh. uh, and it looks Tote looks just like Christopher Lee from um, 1941. <laughs> before they cast Ronald Lacey. And there were others you can actually see in the making of Raiders when they were filming the idol of the Cachapoyan Warriors in the uh, the beginning in Peru, the Peru sequence. The camera's famously coming up to the plinth where the idol is sitting there. If you look on some of the shots looking back at Indy, they had a version of their idol with radio-controlled eyes. Right. Oh, right. It was obviously one of the ideas that they were going to have like the eyes follow Indy around the room or something, but mm-hmm. maybe they shot it, maybe they didn't. I'm guessing it was one of Kit West's little little, little mm. things he put together or probably... they
1: said in a couple of the interviews that it was actually shot that way in the film, but it's just, it's so small in the frame that you can't oh, really? really see it. I've never noticed it. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'd never noticed it either. So
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wonder if that's another legend that's kind of not quite true. I don't know. I got hold of the screenplay for Ray. Back in the uh, late 80s, where, mm-hmm. where in the UK, you could only get stuff mail order from the U- from, uh, U.S., so like, mm-hmm. from a, like a little tiny ad in the back of Starlog magazine. I bought the screenplay and it was been Xeroxed a hundred times. All the pages are wonky. Some pages are missing. <laughs> and I was amazed that in the original script, not the one that they shot, but the script that I got hold of. Um, right. Not only did Indy go after the headpiece to the staff of Ra, He had Mm -hmm. to find the staff of Ra before that. I mean, They had this whole sequence where he went to China, or I think it was, and to find this this stick. And it ended up with him in a cocktail bar, chopping down a big gong and running behind it and jumping out of a window.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Where have I seen that before? (laughs) Yeah, and
3: not only that, but on the island at the end, once they've got the whole arc all, all set up, Mm -hmm. They escape the island by jumping into a mine car
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: by being pursued by Nazis, I guess. But I'm not quite sure the narrative sequence there. But, but obviously, hmm. any fan of Indiana Jones will know, mm-hmm. they did decide to pare back a few things to uh, <laughs> save our sanity in the budget. And uh, we were treated mm-hmm. with them a few years later. Yeah. But it's, uh, hmm. there's, there's more of that in the Rensler book. They went down some wild and woolly paths trying to come up with the third Indiana Jones movie. And people might think that... Throwing Indiana Jones into a refrigerator was a really bad idea in Crystal Skull. No, oh, uh, it's not that bad. You should see some of the things they were thinking of uh, for The Last oh, Crusade, no. honestly.
1: <laughs> I really like all of the films, honestly. I like Last Crusade uh, a lot, um, but I, a lot of people seem to not be big fans of Temple of Doom, but I think it's a great film. Even The Crystal Skull has a lot to commend it.
3: Well, I was madly in love with Karen Allen. Uh, so uh, oh, yeah, went to, to, to see her come back in uh, cr- Crystal Skull, <laughs> it's like I didn't care about the refrigerator at all.
4: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> exactly. She was probably my first movie crush. You know, my disappointment in that movie was that, you know, I didn't think she was given much to do except drive a car and be be goofy. Whereas if you think about <laughs> Raiders, I mean, so much of that movie... You know, she's such a great character and so well drawn out through so many scenes, you know, that not telling you, just very showing you bit by bit, just drawing her character out. She's Mm -hmm. such a
3: wonderful character because it's really an American cinematographer. Spielberg talks about how he was trying to work out how the visual design he wanted for for Raiders of the Lost Ark, working with Mm -hmm. Douglas Slocum, who he'd worked with before on Close Encounters, filming the India sequence. Mm-hmm. And he, he told uh, Slocum that he wanted to go like film noir with Raiders. Mm. But Dougie, as Spielberg always referred to him, he had a different idea and it slowly kind of came about while they were shooting. And they arrived at the visual look of using shadows, but mm. in a more painterly way. I remember one of the things that strikes me is like one of the quintessential images of Indiana Jones is when Indy first walks into the Raven Saloon and mm-hmm. you see his shadow painted on the wall. Right. I bet that's where Richard Amsall took his inspiration for uh, the poster that he did because it's mm. got that wonderful kind of like uh, Casablanca feel to it, the size of the shadow, that classic outline with the f- fedora hat. Yeah. And, and the whole thing came together as this sort of it, – it wasn't a pastiche of film noir, but it had the flavor of it. It sort of found itself and very much – in line with that is uh, marianne ravenwood's character because she's mm-hmm. just the classic howard hawks you know tough broad mm-hmm. and, she, and she and she she's got moments of you know comes across as like a young uh, sort of like, like lauren bacall she's got a history uh, yeah. you never quite know what went down with her and in indy mm-hmm. but obviously she was possibly even underage mm-hmm. and he broke her heart and then abner i always wanted to know about abner ravenwood Right. What was, what was the story there? And uh, I, Did it, did either of you guys see the young Indiana Jones Chronicles? Uh,
1: I've seen bits and pieces of it, but N- no. certainly not all of
3: them. Yeah, I don't know if they ever did an Abner story, but I always wanted to know about Abner because when I heard the Temple of Doom was going to be a prequel, mm. I thought, aha, we're going to meet Abner. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, they do talk yeah. about him like he was, you know, <laughs> a skilled and interesting yeah,
1: uh, I wonder if they do. I, I think all the young indie stuff is on Netflix now. First, you know you can stream it. So yeah, maybe it's worth going back and looking at those.
3: There's a lot of those. Uh, the kind of alternate universe uh, Indiana Jones I'm not familiar with. I know there's been a lot of books and uh, comic books, and uh, probably mm. there are people more knowledgeable than me that are f- uh, familiar with those. There's, there's a great website for anyone that really is into uh, Indiana Jones, and it's called theraider.net. Mm-hmm. And they chronicle everything, every magazine that's ever been, every book there is. And and the people that put that together have got a, a real love for Indiana Jones. It's a great reference.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and they have a podcast, too. They just pull up an amazing amount of, of detail about bits and pieces of the entire Indiana Jones mythos. Joe, maybe, you know, since you've uh, researched this even a little further than I have, do you know what they they did uh, when they were shooting around the flying wing with the propellers running? Are those, I can't believe those are real metal propellers with the actors right next to them. They made a balsa wood or something.
3: I'd have to ask Kit West. <laughs> I, don't, I never thought to ask him that actually. I, I mm. always loved the spray of blood.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: But uh, I don't know. Uh, um, I don't think they would have had the facility to add them optically. Uh, yeah. I, I never imagined that. Um, uh, I would just imagine it's sleight of hand with editing, choice of lenses, and composition that makes it appear that they're really uh, in close proximity to those blades, whereas I'm sure yeah. they, uh, they were far away. There was a terrible accident while they were shooting that. Oh, right. Didn't um,
1: one of the wheels ran over Harrison Ford's knee?
3: Yeah, that's right. He had his tibia between the tire of the plane and uh, and the ground, and that rotating plane was crushing it slowly. Ah. And uh, if it wasn't for the 130 degree Fahrenheit uh, heat that had softened the rubber of the tire of that plane, it would have smashed his uh, tibia into a hundred pieces.
2: And of course, that's now come full circle because he's... I think smashed up his leg uh <laughs> shooting the new uh Star Wars installment
3: supposedly yeah supposedly so we'll uh, yeah supposedly well I, there's an incident and he was hospitalized but I'm not you know people saying oh you know he 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 crushed his foot in the door of the Millennium Falcon Oh, so that's not official news? Well, it's been (laughs) conflated. I mean, George Takei uh, put a Twitter picture of Harrison holding a sign uh, saying, I did the Kessel Run in 500 parsecs or... Pardon me, Star Wars fans. Whatever the th- the quote is, but, <laughs> yeah. but I but I couldn't negotiate the door of the Millennium Falcon.
4: That's a
3: fake. I'm categorically uh, saying that's a fake because somebody's uh, you know took a picture of him from a, holding a sign. Never take a picture of yourself holding a sign and put it on the internet. There are people with Photoshop out there. <laughs> people with Photoshop and evil minds, or just mm-hmm. they just want to mess with you. <laughs> I'm running out of cheat sheets, but there was on the subject of Douglas Slocum's contributions uh, that there's something I've always noticed in Indiana Jones. And I'd never really seen it discussed, but there's a strange visual motif that runs through the film of uh, Indiana Jones eyes. And and I'm not quite sure where it's coming from, but I absolutely adore it. And the first time it occurs in the movie is after uh, Marianne Ravenwood has rejected him. And she kicks him out of the Raven saloon and says, see you tomorrow, Indiana Jones. And he just pauses in the doorway. And there's that one spot of light one in his eye. One tiny spot just hits his eye and you hear the wind or the, the snow rising around him. And it, oh, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it now. <laughs> and then it's reprised later on when they were at Mm's house, get, uh, getting the interpretation of the, uh, the markings off the, the headpiece of the Staff of Ra. Mm-hmm. There's a shot of uh, this little boy played by Kieran Sharp who actually went on to be one of the body doubles for Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Kieran lays out some dates. And that scene is shot through like a Moroccan blind. And again, you just get that framing Mm. of Indy's eye isolated in that Moroccan blind. And in the background, you can hear some like you know chanting going on. It's so eerie. And then the guy comes in and pours the poison. But uh, and and then there's mm-hmm. a, the third time it happens is during the basket chase. Yeah. When um, he runs from a, a brilliant Spielberg moment, so like visually dynamic. I <laughs> Love that moment. From a fast spec, he runs right up, smack bang, with his two eyeballs perfectly <laughs> doing the letterbox <laughs> off that wonderful anamorphic screen. And uh, so it's something about Indiana Jones and his (laughs) Mm. and uh just i love it it's a very unusual kind of visual motif for the film
1: yeah especially that that piece in the basket chase where it's just like like you say, he runs right up to camera and then you see that look on his eyes of, of recognition of mm-hmm. what what he's up against. Yeah. And then it pans over to yeah. see that there's, you know, 30 different baskets in the marketplace. Exactly. <laughs>
3: yeah, It's great. It's great choreography. Yeah. Yeah. They were just having so much fun. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of it there are that 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 shot was exactly storyboarded. But uh, I'm sure just other little moments, they just kind of improvise and they grab them on the set.
1: Where can people find out more about your work, Joe?
3: Well, I have a personal website where you can watch some of my short films, uh, for better or for worse, and cool. uh, read some of my creative writing. And that's uh, flashfilms.us. But uh, most of my work for the last 13 years, uh, you'll find in the pages of Cinefax magazine. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being on.
1: It's been a pleasure. Brian will be returning to chat with me about Dragon Slayer and we'll also be interviewing sound designer Mark Mangini in the second half of our Cinefax 6 coverage in episode 6B in two weeks. Until then, remember that issue 138 of Cinefax is out now. They're summer spectacular with coverage of Captain America, the Winter Soldier, the Amazing Spider-Man 2, Godzilla, Maleficent, and the update on Willis O'Brien's rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dolly. If you buy Cinefix 138 in the store, you'll find Spider-Man leaping skyward just out of reach of a fiery explosion. But subscribers will be treated to Captain America's sidekick Falcon spreading his enormous metal wings on the cover. Or you can order your choice of covers at Cinefix.com. Issue 138 is also available from the Cinefix iPad app which you can find by searching Cinefix in the App Store, or follow the link from our website. Special thanks to our guests, Joe Fordham, Brian Newell, Thane Morris, Jamie Bedding, and our musical guest, Digital Drew. Digital Drew also created the theme music for The Optical, which you're hearing now. You can find out more about his work at Digital Drew, That's digitaldrew.com. And thanks, as ever, to Michael Gower for our beautiful Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. I hope to see you in two weeks for Episode 6B with our continuing coverage of Cinefix Issue 6. Thanks for listening.
3: This is joe fordham and you're listening to the optical
4: was that sexy enough
3: yes. <laughs> should, I a, should i do a sexy one i should probably throw Cineflex magazine in there shouldn't i this is joe fordham from Cineflex magazine thank you for listening to the optical
4: <laughs> just lovely okay